Trigger warning, this podcast contains brief discussions about sexual abuse and suicide, which some listeners may find distressing or upsetting. So please listen with caution. Hi Venters, welcome back to another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I'm your host Freddie Cocker and this podcast is brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas and start conversations. Each pod, I check in with a special guest. We have a natter and a chat about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we discuss it. In today's episode, I'm checking in with a writer, YouTuber, and hopefully future author. Alexander L. lives in Norway, one of my favourite countries in the world, and moved there from Poland when he was 16 years old. He suffered severe bullying when he was in school in Poland, which caused him to develop sex dysphoria and a feeling he was not quote-unquote good enough to be a man. He also felt disgust towards his genitalia and had a strong desire to escape his sexuality and sexual desire more generally. All of these combined to draw Alexander towards the idea of transition and he went on estrogen and a testosterone blocker when he was 19 years old. He then socially transitioned and made the decision to get penile inversion surgery, otherwise known as bottom surgery, when he was 21 years old. Fast forward a few years and he realised that transition was not the path for him and he decided to detransition. Unfortunately, during his attempt to detransition, he was also sexually assaulted and he also had issues with addiction, specifically antipsychotic medication and painkillers. Alex is now 30 years old and speaks about his transition and detransition, as well as other political issues, on his YouTube channel. In this episode, we chart this journey of transition, detransition, and carving out a new path for him in life now. We discuss the current state of the healthcare system for men and boys like him in Norway suffering from dysphoria, his plans to publish a book in the future and wanting to start an organisation for other people who have also detransitioned in Norway. I've always said this podcast will be a place for men like Alex who have detransitioned and I hope his story helps any parents or young people in Norway or beyond make the right decision for themselves and their families, transition or not. So this is how my check-in with Alexander L went. Alex, welcome to the Just Checking Pod, or as you would say in your YouTube channel, greetings and salutations. Thank you for letting me check in with you. Our mutual friend Richie posted your profile and channel on his timeline a few months ago, and after seeing it and wanting to speak to you, I am delighted to be having you on the podcast now. How are you, first of all, mate? I'm pretty good, honestly. Like I'm, I'm always good. Life is too, <laughs> sh- life is too short to have bad time, you know. Excellent. You've you've had a lot of podcasts this week, so I'll try and be as uh, gentle as I can with this interview. And I'm really pleased you decided to say yes to this podcast, mate. I was really impressed with your attitude and your desire to build bridges on all the issues that we're going to talk about, which is something you're quite passionate about on your YouTube channel. It's very much my attitude too. So without further delay, are you ready to start the show? Let's start your podcast by talking about your mental health journey, Alex. So I ask all my special guests this question first. So take me back to your early life in Poland before you moved to Norway, teenage years, and were there any early mental health experiences? Who's the Alex we meet here? 
Right, so uh, basically like starting at the beginning, you could say. Yeah, so I was born in Poland, and that's where I was raised. And then I moved to Norway, where I live now. But yeah, my childhood and like early teenage years were spent in Poland. So yes, I did transition for a while and lived as a trans woman for a couple of years, uh, from the time when I was 19 till I was uh, 22, 23-ish. But before that, what set me on that journey to begin with, I lived a really mostly normal childhood at first. Sure, I was autistic, but I, I didn't even know at the time because I wasn't diagnosed with autism until I was an adult. But, you know, looking back, there were like signs that I was definitely like quite different from my peers. I didn't even notice when I was a kid because I wasn't that preoccupied with my peers, to be honest. But if you would like to know more about the specific things that made me think that transition was the right choice for me, I think it's mostly three components. And I don't know if you want to go chronologically about it. Let's, like let's slowly, go chronologically. Or... Yeah, because sure, sure. there was one life event that you spoke about, which I was surprised you even remembered, which had a very big impact on you, didn't it? Right at the start of your life. Yes, it was a funeral. Uh, mm-hmm. When I was three years old, actually, you know, like my grandma, she was taking me to random funerals and just telling me about death, which which I also misunderstood as a kid because I felt like after you get to a certain age, you get so old, like the society decides, you know what, you're too old to be walking around, so they bury you alive, they put you in that coffin and bury you alive, and that was like the image that was playing in my mind of me being an old man who's trying to scratch his way out of the coffin. So I had really, really bad panic attacks when I was like three, four years old. How do I remember that? I mean, I was three years old, so I think it's common to remember things at that age. I don't know. I mean, it's hard for me to compare it to how other people experience it. But uh, to me, I became self-aware quite early. I mean, it was around the time when I was two. But even before that, I have some memory there. Like even before I was one year old, I remember my first birthday. I remember my first Christmas. I remember things like my walker. I used to walk around with as a toddler. Like before I was one years old, before I could walk on my own. I remember the color. I remember it was green, like the details on it, all of that. But I don't think I was aware of my own existence at the time. It was more like you're aware of your surroundings you know like who your parents are you recognize shapes and forms but like there is no i there who is perceiving Mm. all of it you know you're perceiving something but who is perceiving it and that realization that i exist i remembered it very clearly when i was two years old and it was so random like this switch and I think that's where your life really starts. The moment things become clear. And I know it was when I was two years old because I was thinking at the time, how long have I been alive? Mm. And it was a question that was on my mind constantly around that time. And so I asked my mom, how old am I? How long have I lived? And she told me two years. Like I'm two years old. I had no idea what two years means. So I asked her, what's a year? And she said, it's 24 days. So I asked her, what's a day? No, sorry, 365 days. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> the maths weren't math in there, mate. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> and yeah, so, so she said, it, a day is 24 hours. So I asked her, what is an hour? And then what is a minute? What is a second? 
And then I was like, who decides all of that? <laughs> and There's I, some I, very I, massive questions. There's some, I know two-year-olds have a Y stage, but this was a very deep Y stage. <laughs> <laughs> I lost my parents at that point. Like They were like, nope, <laughs> nope. I mean, no surprising that I took such an interest in philosophy. Um, mm-hmm. Like it's one of like the biggest passions of my life, really. Poland is a very different country to the UK, not just when it comes to social attitudes, but also ethnic diversity. And we're going to come to this in a little bit. But when you're in a society where you feel like an outsider, as you said, you felt very different to other people and, and your peers. Do you think the transition later on was a way of you maximizing that outsider status so you could own your perception internally uh not really quite the opposite actually quite the opposite actually i think i did it in order to fit in wow okay yeah i'm not sure how common it is for people to transition for that reason but it was more like i was so certain that i could never fit in and feel normal as a guy so i had to walk in the shoes of a woman to feel normal like I mm. could fit in and be yeah, more or less normal because uh, I just I felt like this standard of manhood was just not something I could achieve or something that I would fit in. Like I don't fit into that role. I, of course, I possess better understanding of it now. You know, like uh, there is not one right way to be a man. And I don't think there's one right way to be a woman. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, at the time, all I was exposed to was just this uh, macho culture or like laddish culture Mm. and in that sense i think yes there are certain differences between uh uk and poland but this laddish culture is definitely something they have in common yes and uh, i see this laddish culture in like almost every place in england that i have been to so there's certain similarity there yeah definitely you said to me that this feeling of not being quote unquote good enough to be a man came a lot from being bullied so can you explain how the bullying affected your mental health and then when you started to experience that sex dysphoria as well as two very difficult feelings, which was a disgust towards your sexual organs or genitalia and a strong desire to escape your sexuality as yeah. a sexual being? Right. Uh, so the feeling of dysphoria or disgust towards my own genitals came long before bullying. Okay. I had it since like... Early childhood, pretty much. And I think it's because of the association with death. Mm. You know, it's like, uh, it's sort of an extension of you for your genes to survive. But to me, it got like really bad. It felt like I didn't ask for it. I didn't ask to have those parts. I didn't even ask to be here in the first place. And I was just thrown into this role that I never asked for. That was definitely a catalyst behind everything. And when I was 10 years old, at that point, I had no idea what sex even is. All I know is that your private parts are for peeing. That's (laughs) That's all there is to it. And my first experience with anything sexual was what my uh, uncle's house. And it's it's not what you're thinking. Okay, right. I was bracing <laughs> myself for something dark there. No, 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 no. It's not it's not that dark. No, but he had a DVD collection. And I used to love to like borrow different DVDs from him. And I was really like into horror and sci fi mm-hmm. and like uh, cinema classics. Uh, mm-hmm. in general i loved black and white films and i loved a lot of like horror films from the 70s 
and some psychological horror. Yeah, so like Hitchcock, early Hitchcock yeah. stuff and stuff. Like oh yeah, that. I love, yeah, love, love, yeah. love Hitchcock. Yeah, but I was just going through his DVD collection and I found some porn. And like that, that was my first exposure to anything sexual, and it traumatized me deeply. Like, oh my god, like, is this what I came here to this world for? I'm like, I don't want to do this. People are weird when I was looking at his images, it absolutely freaked me out. Absolutely freaked me out. And uh, I remember thinking, like, women's breasts are so disgusting. <laughs> that that was just my thought back then. Perhaps, you know, early sign that I wasn't exactly going to be straight. You're a bisexual man and you discovered this a bit later on. So you moved to Norway when you're 16. The dysphoria hasn't gone away, though. So initially, was the move, despite it being complete uprooting of your culture and where you lived and family, friends, all that sort of stuff, was the move a positive one in, in the sense of escaping the bullying and having a fresh start in a much more liberal and in theory, no disrespect to Poland, more tolerant country? Yeah, a bit confused about the order here since we haven't talked about the bullying yet as like in depth. But yeah, sure, sure. It helped me a lot. I don't think I've ever experienced any sort of bullying in this country, actually, like here in Norway. So yeah, it definitely helped. And the part of me being bisexual... Sure, let's roll with that for simplicity's sake. It's a bit more complicated than that in practice. Okay, um, tell me about it. Sure, so like purely physically or sexually, I'm exclusively attracted to men, for sure. When it comes to like more romantic or uh, emotional attraction, I relate more to women. And for that reason, I like... It was one of the reasons why I was dating women in the past, I think a big part of it also is because, you know, when I was bullied, when I was being told that I could never be a real man, I could never get a girlfriend, it was this idea, oh, you're telling me I will never get a girlfriend, watch me. <laughs> it was like uh, like this idea that I had to prove something. So I was dating women just to, for the status, okay, am I being seen as a man now? Like, do they mm. see me as straight? So like, it was never about her. It was more like, how am I being perceived by people around me when I'm holding her hand and things like that? Do people think I'm a straight man? I mm. think it's stupid right now. So I like, I don't do that anymore. I would say I don't even use the word homosexual, actually. But I really like the word uh, androsexual. Okay. Which, uh, which explain uh, that. And well, andro is like the Greek word for man or masculinity. That's that's where like androgynous mm -hmm. uh, is coming yes. from. Like andro is for the masculine, gyne is uh, the feminine. Right? That's why we have words like gynecologist and so on and so on, or androgen, like it's, uh, as mm -hmm. in testosterone. But I think you know, at its core, the sort of sexuality that uh, straight men and gay women have is the same. It is attraction to uh, women. And in the same way, uh, the attraction that gay men and straight women have is the same. It is attraction towards men or masculinity. They're not that different. That's why I think it's uh, so unnecessary to focus on the subject, like who's experiencing it. Because if you say like heterosexual or homosexual, you're focusing on the subject, like who's experiencing the attraction. Whereas with terms like androsexual or gynosexual, it's like, a pure attention on the object of attraction. And I think that just makes much more sense to me. How long did it take you to come to that theory or conclusion? Um, not that long, actually. I've been, I've been um, thinking of it for a long time. But, you know, I mean, I think it makes perfect sense. And I get it like it's, it's not going to demand that this should be the standard, but it, 
is what makes like most sense uh, to mm. me personally. I want to talk about transition now because I don't want you to relive the bullying, to be honest, too much because I've been bullied myself and I know it's it's quite exhausting to keep repeating the same stuff that's happened to you over and over again, yeah. despite the fact that you, you've owned it now. So when it comes to transition, how did you come to the decision that transition was what you wanted to do at this point and why? Right. right. Um, so, you know, I first started thinking about it when I was 15 and it was at the time when I truly felt like I could never be a man. And I was looking at some past events of my life, you know, like uh, when I was eight years old, I would uh, just paint me nails completely randomly. So I had this acoustic guitar and a piece of it broke. So I had this little wooden piece of uh, the acoustic guitar and I was painting it with the nail polish that my mom had. And after that, I was thinking, hey, you know what, let's paint my nails just for try fun and be ba- try and be bowie <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> you can say that and when i was nine i was pretending to be a wife of one of my classmates okay so like you know I mean, a lot it, going on there yeah i mean it's yeah. not maybe not a typical uh, behavior a nine-year-old boy would uh, experience but i don't think it's that weird i think we should stop pathologizing all sorts of behavior that just doesn't fall into this standard you know and Mm. now you see like you're saying that if your kid plays with toys that are assigned for the opposite sex it's a sign that they have gender dysphoria and uh it's just it's it's so exhausting, weird, it, it's exhausting. and I think it's such bullshit, to be honest. Mm. Like, you know, we were working so hard to get to this point where we think, like, kids can play with whatever they want, and that's cool. But no, we got to this point where, oh, well, no, if, you, if your son is playing with Barbies, then he's probably a daughter. Yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, make it it's make sense. Weird how we've come to this. It's weird how we've come to this point, but there you go. Yeah. When it comes to the medical transition, mate, so you took hormones, specifically estrogen and a testosterone blocker how did these change your physical appearance and alter or impact your mental health at the time so when it comes to physical appearance i think most of it is uh really skin i had richie on my channel as well and he he said i listened to the whole thing mate all All right hour and 52 minutes (laughs) yeah yeah it was lovely it was lovely so yeah, I'm uh, I'm on board with that. It's mostly like changes in the skin, but for me, it's more than just like smoothness of the skin. But also, like I always had a lot of skin conditions, right, entire mm-hmm. life. And when I was on estrogen, that was like the only time in my whole life when I had perfect skin. And I missed that somehow. I'm going to lie if I say I won't miss that. And I think there is this mentality after you detransition that you're like not supposed to miss being on estrogen or living as a trans woman. You know, I'm going to be completely honest. Like there are certain aspects I surely miss. You would miss like, having clear skin, mate. I am someone who's had skin issues my entire life. I've had acne for 13, 14 years. I was on isocetronin or roaccutane twice to get rid of it i've had uh what else have i had folliculitis i've got keratosis pilaris on my arms which is a family condition so i know all about skin conditions mate so i completely yeah. hear you yeah uh, you know i think it might be because it's been years since i detransitioned it's like it's not a fresh thing that's happening right now so i think also i look at it differently and mm. there's like very little resentment at this point it's more like I accept what happened and sure, I do miss certain aspects. And uh, I would even say that I was pretty happy 
when I was living as a trans woman. It's not like I had a bad time or anything, or it felt like, oh, this was such a wrong decision I made. No, no. I mean, I, I was fine. The reason why I detransitioned had nothing to do with the fact that it felt like I made a wrong choice. It was more about um, self-acceptance, really. Mm. It's like, it's better to just accept yourself than to uh, go through all of those changes. And also, I'm not the person who would tell other people that this is what they should do. I'm not the sort of person who goes around saying, oh, you're going to regret it because I regretted it. You know, I think it's all very, very individual. In, also, in if you sense. tell someone that at the time, it'll probably re-entrench their decision rather than change their mind, even yes. if you're trying to. Yes. Do you know what I mean? Yes, so. that's exactly what is the case with me too. When people say that it was just a face, I felt like I had to take my transition even more seriously just to prove that it isn't just a face. So word of advice, never, never Guilt tell tra- trans person <laughs> that it's just a face. Like it yeah. it's, doesn't solve anything. It's just, mm. yeah. As we both know, mate, estrogen and testosterone are very different hormones. You know, testosterone is one of the most powerful hormones on earth. Estrogen has many different aspects to it. And you said that estrogen killed your sex drive. And the women I've interviewed who've detransitioned said that testosterone turbocharged their sex Mm. drive for a comparison for the listeners. However, you said that it was one of the best things that ever happened to you in killing your sex drive. Can you just explain that for listeners? You might be a bit confused at that statement. Yeah, I mean, I, I can understand confusion, right? Like most people see like sex drive as a healthy thing or a good thing. So of course... Within reason, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, with with uh, exactly. And that is such an important thing to specify that it's within reason. And the sex drive I had when I was a teenager was not within reason. It was absolutely abnormal. I was going at it sometimes like eight to 11 hours a day. Jesus Christ. I would go to bed early because I had such a big problem just holding it in. I had a problem holding it in uh, during classes when I was having dinner with my family. So I just was finding reasons to just stay alone just to go at it or uh, take bathroom breaks during classes to have a go at it. (sighs) Yeah, that's not something I can speak to, but yeah, I feel your pain, mate. And, um, you know, I would, yeah, start at like 10 at night. And sometimes I will go at it at six in the morning. Fucking hell. Yeah. If my parents yeah, That's not sustainable, is it? <laughs> no, no. I mean, if it's if my parents were weren't at home, if they went out somewhere and they were gone for a couple of days, I would go for it like yeah, 11, 12 hours a day on those instances, like half a day, basically. I would just take breaks to eat and sleep. Wow, that's, that's um, a job. Pardon yeah. the pun. That is a yeah. job. Wow, I completely get what you mean now, mate. Yeah, It's exhausting. You get dehydrated. You get Mm. so little energy. I was just functioning like a zombie because if you masturbate till six o'clock and then you're starting your classes at half eight. Yeah, well, good luck with that. I mean, Um, I guess there's shame there as well because people be like, why are you tired? Then you've got to lie. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And, you know, I also developed uh, like physical issues because of that too. I started to bleed. Wow. I had like I had blisters over there. And at times I would even like ejaculate blood. Fucking hell. Yeah, because I, I would be coming like four or five times a night. That must be quite scary. It is, it is. And I was scared, but I didn't even go to any doctors because uh, I had such a bad... Shame, yeah. Sh- yeah. It's not just shame, but also I had such a bad destroyer around my genitals. 
I didn't want anyone to see them. And, mm. you know, I think like, I'd rather die than let someone see that. So if anyone would ask me if I do miss my penis, I mean, if I think of that bloody red blistered thing, it's hard for me to miss it. Like, I, th- I found it peaceful through transition, actually. And that's not, I mean, was it worth it, like, in terms of complications? No, but part of me is at peace right now because of mm. that. So it, it did save me in some way, you know. When it comes to social transition, obviously you said that you lived quite happily as a transman for that period of time. So when your friends or family members or, or any anyone in your network affirmed you, how do you look back on it now? Do you think they should have pushed back on you knowing that you've detransitioned? Are you happy that they affirmed you? Kind of how do you reflect on that period? Right. So first of all, I was doing my best to be as stealthy as possible. Which it is what just... most old school transsexuals yes. tended to do. Yeah. Yes. And that was, that was the case with me too. So there were a handful of people who knew, who knew me from before, but I was also starting at a new school at the time. So that was all right. And I was 19 when I transitioned, uh, when I started taking hormones. But before that, I didn't transition socially at all. Mm-hmm. I didn't transition socially until I was already on hormones. And mostly because I didn't want to be seen as a guy dressing as a woman. Like, I think there was like some stigma around mm. it. I didn't want to be perceived that way. I always want to be perceived as a biological woman. And that was like always my goal to begin with. I don't even think it's that healthy, to be honest. Uh, because like you're lying to yourself, really. And uh, I think it's much healthier to just, you know, like say, hey, you know what? I'm trans. And I also noticed that those people who have that goal in mind, like, you know, it's trans and it's cool, also have a much happier transition, more fulfilling transition than those who are think like, I am no different from a trans woman. Like if you're starting to convince yourself that you're having periods, um, you should probably get help, to be honest. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I wasn't, the, I wasn't those, convincing those myself. Those TikToks are a bit wild, aren't they? I've seen a couple. They are. I don't know why they did. are. Yeah. And I feel sorry for those people, to be honest. And it's easy... It's so easy to make fun of people saying things like that on the internet. You know, I mean, there's so many YouTube channels who like just uh, prey on that, on mental unwellness of people and just make fun of that. Like if it's something to laugh at, I look at it differently. I feel sorry for those people. I feel sympathy for them, even though sometimes they can be nasty in their behavior. Like, yeah, I mean, I understand it. Yeah. yeah, I mean, the one I saw where the trans-identified male was basically saying, I want to be the first trans woman to have an abortion. That was pretty dark. But it yeah, was, I, it I'm, I'm, I'm normally with you on the yeah. on the general point. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, of course, you know, there, there are like some uh, trans people on the internet who actually threaten women with violence, even. I think like that's not okay. That's definitely like taking it too far. But I think in many, many cases, those are like cries for help in a way. So, yeah, coming back to the, the question you asked me about the changes. So at some point on estrogen, I got to the point where people were actually thinking that I'm a girl. How did that and feel? Was that a relief? I, did you feel good? Did you feel yes, bad? Yes, I did. I did feel good about it. Uh, definitely. I was dating a guy at the time and it was... Okay. I wasn't even interested in him, but it was more like an affirming thing. That ah, oh, a straight guy wants to date me, so that oh, okay, so I'm he was a straight guy, and I feel, right? Yes, yes. Right. And 
his parents didn't know that I was trans. Or oh my god! Like that a lot of people didn't know that I was trans. So I, I've managed to be quite stealthy in that sense. Did he know? Yeah, yeah, yeah of course. Oh, okay, he, thank he, God. He know. I think okay. I taught, taught him like uh, three weeks in or something like that. Right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. You spoke about the surgery, and right. you've got a particular perspective on it which i guess the listeners might be a, a, almost a, maybe a little bit confused about as well so how did you come to the decision and can you just tell me about some of the health complications obviously you don't have to be too graphic or explicit if you don't want to um you know i am very graphic and explicit in uh, as I we found out yeah <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you if you like to hang out with me, like outside of podcasts or YouTube videos, I have the dirtiest mouth possible. And you're Norwegian as well, so you guys yeah. are introverted but also blunt, which is a powerful <laughs> combination. Um, I don't I don't consider myself an introvert to be honest, but uh, no, no, you're not. No, but I just mean no, Norwegian people more I'm, generally. But here's the thing: you're you're saying that you're always saying that, but I don't know. The, I think the people I'm hanging out with are very extroverted. So I barely, oh, okay. ever, I barely ever see that introverted side of Norwegians. I don't know, maybe because it's hard to find them because they're so introverted. Like you don't hang out with them because they don't hang out. Sure. Unless they're drunk, usually that's, that's yeah, the thing. yeah, 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 yeah. Everyone's an extrovert when they're drunk, but yeah. When I what I sure, found sure. when I went to Oslo was <laughs> was a lot of people who uh, I tried talking to, and then I swiftly realised, like London, they either thought I was after them for something, or I was like, so I was like, just oh, chill, it's like doing English. Okay, yes. Where is the nearest uh, bus stop? Okay, thank you very much. Bye. <laughs> yeah, and I think they're become even more extroverted uh, when they speak English. Because mm. like they're not as in, at ease in sense. Also, I notice I'm become more introverted when I speak Norwegian. See, maybe it's a cultural trait, mate. Maybe it's a could, thing. Could, Who could, knows? No, I mean I don't think so. I think it's because I feel less comfortable. Uh, speaking the region ah, I okay. feel speaking English like I mean I'd say English is my primary language because I started speaking it very early so I sort of grew up multilingual right. uh, or bilingual uh, mm-hmm. of course um, my family is Polish and grew up there, so I was talking, speaking Polish but I've learned English at a very young age like on my own just from uh, films and video games. I was going to say, yeah, it sounds about yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, and at my grandma's place where I was staying quite a lot when I was like three, four, and we had Cartoon Network, but it was in, oh, Engl- but it was in English. I yeah, watched it yeah. at my nan's as well, Cartoon Network. It was a treat. It was a treat for me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. but like it was in English. So you were learning English off like yeah. Ed, Ed and Eddie and Cow and Chicken and Courage the Cowardly um, Dog, basically. Uh, yeah, you know what? The stuff I was watching was like Scooby Doo and Adam's yep. Family, Flintstones, yep. uh, mm. classics, classics. Classics, you know? yeah. But yeah, like that's that's where I learned English from. And um, so after that, I was watching like Life of Brian. Oh wow, yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Love, love Monty Python in general. Like that's uh, definitely my my sense of humor. When it comes to post surgery, mate, you've said at the most difficult times and moments you've had flashbacks nightmares sometimes several times a week we spoke off air about you know the option of something like emdr therapy which was very very helpful for me is that something that you've looked into or have you looked into other things that perhaps help you with those issues or nightmares um would i consider it yes i think i haven't i haven't tried it but yeah it I changed have... my life mate 100 mm. i used to have nightmares a lot as well changed my life 
I imagine. I mean, I wouldn't say that, you know, my life is bad by any means. Yes, yeah, yeah. but, but you always I, want to live better, yeah, don't you? Yeah, yeah. But I mean, I, you know, I did have medical traumas mm. and there's uh, no escaping that in that sense. I had more than just medical traumas. Like I had traumas from bullying. I had medical traumas from surgery and I had sexual traumas as well after an assault that happened some years ago. Mm. we'll come to that in a second mate because i know that's a very difficult time for you but i think it chronologically falls a little bit later can you just tell me about how you felt then when you came out of surgery and your to be blunt your penis is no longer there you you spoke about a relief earlier in the pod but did it remove the dysphoria or did it just add a different element of it Uh, i think it's neither really okay it's uh I didn't feel the relief, mostly because uh, the complications were so bad. There was no chance for me to feel any sort of relief at that point. It's not like I felt the new... I mean, sure, I guess I still hate what's down there. And I, mm. I hated it back then, and I hate it right now. So it didn't make that much of a difference. I mean, I don't think I'll ever learn to love it. I've learned to live with it, but I just I can't imagine how I could possibly love my parts. I mean, sure, it healed right now, but I still remember it looking like a crime scene. Ugh. You know, and uh, like, yeah, them taking you know, this package of those bandages and all it being mm. like bloody and swollen and red and blue and purple. It's like being punched there like 200 times by a professional boxer, really, that's what it looked like, you know, like if you punch someone in their face like a hundred times and it gets all like swollen and bloody, that's what it looked like. It looked like nothing tangible, really. Now it just looks weird and fake and it's it's not like it's functional uh, in any mm. way. So I do uh, experience orgasms, so it's not like uh, it's not functional in that sense, but like it doesn't work like a vagina and I haven't been violating for nine years. Mm. I stopped very early. Like I think last time was like half a year after the surgery. And after that, I was done. I was like, I'm not doing this. I don't care what happens. And yeah, there are really bad risks involved if you choose to stop dilating. Mm. Since, you know, it could create like this uh, air bubble, this pocket inside of you. There's a risk of infections. But honestly, like at that point, I just couldn't be bothered anymore. Mm. I was like, whatever happens, happens. I'm still alive. I'm well. So uh, I'm grateful for that. And, you know, just trying to do the best with uh, the time I've been given. Yeah, mate. It sounds like you're at peace with it, but not over the moon about it, which I guess is the kind of the best place you can be at this point. Let's just talk about the detransition process now, because... I want to ask you when it started and was it a eureka moment where you suddenly switched a light bulb or was it a perhaps more gradual process and a decision that it was a path you didn't want to take anymore? It was very gradual. I think like my whole detransition phase took um, three years in total. I think, you know, the complications from the surgery definitely played a role there because you didn't exactly get what you were expecting, right? Like, this is not what I signed up for, that sort of thinking. But also, you know, I think eventually I might have come to that conclusion either way, but 
no, I remember very clearly like the first time I had this thought in my head and even said it out loud on the telephone, actually. I'm not a woman, I'm just a feminine guy. And I think like that was the start of it, though it set me on that journey. And I, I stopped taking estrogen in the autumn of 2014. So like half a year after my surgery. And just to see how I would feel, you know. And uh, it was fine. I was fine going without it. And a lot of people wouldn't recommend being like not taking any hormones after this type of surgery because your your gonads are removed. So you're like, you're not producing any natural sex hormones. Or I mean, you do, but it's like a very, very, very tiny amount. So um, it's not perfect like it's not healthy for your body but i think the the alternatives are much worse being on hrt i don't think hrt is something that was meant to be long term i know trans people who haven't uh, detransitioned because of regret but who detransitioned many years later because of health issues associated mm. with hrt which means they had just had to stop taking it it was either that or the life it's not a perfect solution by any means. Yeah. HRT, it co- you know, it comes with certain side effects, certain dangers. And you need to be fully aware of that when you're going into it. You can't go into it blindly, really. Do you think it should be renamed a little bit? Because I know HRT was a term that was originally used when, say, women who were going through the menopause were given hormone replacement as a therapy. So it was, li- it was literally quite a literal term. But do you think, given what you've just said, that maybe we should change that term to make it a bit more reality-based or, I don't know, more scientific? Um, it's not it, it was, It's not a therapy for some, but it's maybe a therapy for others. Maybe it's not a universal term. Sure, sure. I mean, it's not what I'm most concerned about. But yeah, sure. I mean, if someone wants to, yeah, wh- why not? Why not? You know, a lot of the time people say taking cross-sex hormones. Yeah, I, th- I think that's, that's, descri- yeah. that's descriptive and accurate enough of what it is for a trans person to take uh, those meds, those drugs. Yeah, mm. taking cross-sex hormones. And, that, you know, that sort of amount of the opposite sex hormone is like not natural for your body either. So that is going to have the consequences because you're still a biological male or you're still a biological female despite transitioning. And I think it's important to point that out that there are those biological differences between males and females. Because like on the medical level, uh, even if you're transitioned into living as a woman, you're, you're still a male on a biological medical level. You know, there's um, different lung capacity and many other things like the way you well, would treat a male and a female patient at a hospital. And it's important to point out those differences because it can be life saving. When it comes to the social detransition, given all the work you had put in physically and mentally to pass, how difficult was it to detransition physically and how difficult was it to detransition socially, i.e. telling friends or family that you were going back, essentially? So physically, it was a very gradual. I didn't go on testosterone until 2019. So I was I was still very feminine, even when I wasn't on estrogen. So even though I uh, detransitioned, uh, like the society was still reading me as a woman, no matter how I dressed. People just thought I was uh, a butch lesbian or like an androgynous lesbian or something right. like that. That was how I was read by society. And socially, well, I didn't even tell my parents. But I think they just knew. 
it was like there was no need to talk about it. It was just like, yeah, we know. We know, and I know that you know. And a lot of times people thought that I was transitioning from uh, female to male. Like I was a trans guy. Like a lot of people thought wow. I was a trans guy. And I, I wasn't going into details about it. But like, you know, that wasn't my first rodeo. But that's <laughs> a real testament to passing. <laughs> yes, yes. Even like years after you detransition, you're still being read as a, as a female. That's definitely, definitely uh, there. Also, you know, sometimes I would tell people that I was born intersex, mostly just to avoid talking about why my body is different, why my appearance is different from uh, other men and things like that. And uh, it also came out of this need to talk about it. Like, I wanted to talk about my experience in surgery, but there was so much shame behind it that I just mm. couldn't utter a single word about it. But just talking about an intersex condition, like, allowed me to do that without being completely honest about what happened, because I didn't want to disclose it. Before we move on to a couple of other issues in your mental health journey, mate, you mentioned the sexual assault, and this happened whilst you were still passing, but during your detransition process. Yes. So I presume the perpetrator didn't know you were trans and read you as female. So A, how did the event affect your mental health? And how did that particular angle of it affect the way you processed the trauma? Um, so he didn't know I was, uh, I was trans or that I was detransitioning, but he knew I was intersex which is right. obviously, obviously not true, but that's, that's what I told him to. We were good friends. Oh, okay. So it's not, so it wasn't it's a stranger not, in a night out, no, right? Okay. No, yeah. no, nothing like that. Nothing like that. It was, it was a friend I trusted, and I have a hard time trusting people as a result mm. of that. Like, uh, there are some people I call friends who are, you know, like still there in my life, but I have a hard time building friendships or even romantic relationships. It's hard for me because that trust level is very hard to establish, and. I became this person who's just doing the casual things, you know. I just go to a bar and have a casual fling with someone, just flirt, but never take it any further. I've been living a celibate lifestyle pretty much. It's uh, hard for me to move further from there because of the trauma, really. So it's, it's really hard for me to trust people in general. Do you think you'll be able to get to a good place about it? in the future i hope so i hope so especially oh, you know good, considering mm. that i've uh, gotten to a good place in many other ways that just there's just much more i need to work on mm. in that sense and we're manifesting I, it mate we're manifesting maybe a part two in the future <laughs> will uh will come to it and you'll be you'll be in a much better place during this process and period of your life you were also struggling with addiction specifically to antipsychotic medication and painkillers now mm. You may be aware of a psychologist called Gabor Mate, who often talks about analysing the reasons why people become addicted and issues like self-harm, what lies behind the pain. So what pain was that addiction masking for you, Alex? Oh, a lot. Mm. Almost like my entire life. I just didn't want to feel anything. And if I did want to feel something, it was wanted to feel the good thing. So like you could say I was taking the antipsychotics and like strong painkillers and i think that, like the first time i was on strong painkillers was right after the surgery that's so understandable yes, yes and fair. that's uh, <laughs> that's also like started me on that path, oh okay sort of, mm -hmm. right like i wanted 
to be high on those meds all over again. Uh, As and, an escapism uh, sort of thing? Yes. And I wanted yeah. to like escape both from, you know, uh, the trauma of bullying, the medical trauma, and eventually the sexual trauma as well. Yes. So I was uh, self-medicating to uh, feel like a zombie almost. And on top of that, I was also doing a lot of recreational drugs too. I've tried almost everything out there to be honest. And I was mixing things sometimes, like taking... Oh, that's dangerous. And uh, I was Mm. taking quetiapine and uh, cocaine combined. God, you were like Wolf of Wall Street mixed with uh, a lot of other things. <laughs> yes, yes. And, and, and I also mixed painkillers with alcohol. Oh, I, uh, God, that's very dangerous, pal. Very dangerous. Yeah. And uh, I did I did overdose, actually. Mm. So I'm, I'm still here. I'm alive. I'm grateful for it. But it was almost like a suicide attempt at one point. How did you feel after the overdose having survived um i think it took a while before it actually dawned on me because you um you feel like you're walking on a dream in a way after that it's very similar to waking up from the surgery in that way Mm. you're like you're very confused so i was pretty confused after the overdose in a very similar way but uh eventually like I didn't even think of it as a suicide at that point. It was more like either an accident or like curiosity. Let's just go to sleep and shut off my brain completely. See what happens. If I die, that's cool. If I don't, that's cool. Like that was my attitude. Like I don't think I really appreciated life at that point, you know. And of course, it was hard for me to appreciate life and like nothing about my life was good. I even dropped out of uh, university at that point because of uh, my addiction because of the depression as well i was also getting seizures while, oh, while wow. i was at the university they started in uh, 2018 exactly and those were not like full body seizures so i had uh, some level of consciousness like i was conscious but it was a focal seizure restricted only to the left side of my body gosh that could feel like a stroke jesus it, it is and i at first i actually thought i had a stroke and I called an ambulance. I tried to stand up. I fell down to the floor. And uh, I felt my heart pounding so hard that I was feeling it in my feet. And yeah, I called uh, called the ambulance. They didn't even send the ambulance. They said, get a taxi and come to the emergency center. So I had to get into a taxi. And I was there. And from there, I was sent to a hospital. And they concluded I had a panic attack. The way they concluded that is that I have a heightened heart rate and sweaty palms. And here's the thing, right? I just experienced one of the most intense and insane moments of my entire life in that moment. And on top of that, I have medical trauma. I panic whenever I'm at like clinics or hospitals or emergency centers. That puts me in a panic mode, like immediately, because it's like all of the flashbacks from uh, the time I had my bottom surgery are just coming back. So, of course, I'm going to have sweaty palms and you just um, say, oh, no, that was just an anxiety. It's like I have dealt with anxiety and panic attacks my whole life. I know what they feel like. That was not it. Mm. 
So I dealt with those seizures and now I get very little of it, but it might happen like once a year. I've uh, learned to live with it, but uh, for a while I was getting it even sometimes several times a month. You've been through so much here, mate. What got you through it? Um, music, I think. I would lie if I said that music didn't play a big role in it. Video games too, actually. It was the very fact that I was looking forward to like new releases of video games that was at some point kept me going because like I was felt like I didn't want to live, but I I also want to play that new game that is coming out <laughs> in three months. Which ones were so, you looking forward to? I'm thinking of the time period here. <laughs> um, well, that was around 2018, uh, 2019 ish. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to Resident Evil 2 remake. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it was like one of my childhood's game. I loved Resident mm-hmm. Evil and Silent Hill when I was a kid. And oh gosh, cr- I never cr- touched Silent Hill crash, with a barge pole. Crash Bandicoot, Tekken, yep. Resident Evil, Silent Hill, Tomb Raider. Okay, Those have you watched like the um, Tekken classics. anime show? Yes, I did. Yeah, Bloodlines. I, I thought it was decent. Yeah. yeah. Um, I was very indifferent to it, to be honest. Uh, I mean, it does what it says on the tin, but it, it didn't offer yeah. anything like you no, know, radically I mean, it, it different, was, did it? It was, yeah. it was fun. It was fun. I especially liked the first couple of episodes. Eventually. Yes. I think there was no it, Yoshimitsu I was a bit disappointed with, or like, or Eddie. Right, but... <laughs> right, right. I guess they couldn't like cram those into six episodes, but there you go. No, True, true. And there's a lot of characters, so uh, to focus yes. on all of them yeah. would be almost impossible. They got Hororang in and all those high kicks, so I was like, oh, <laughs> yeah, okay, that's, yeah, that's yeah, good, yeah. good fan service. <laughs> but, you know, ever since I was a kid, I wanted a, a TV series based on Tekken, based on those characters. And but now you've got uh, one. Yes. <laughs> one, se- yes. One series, yes. but there you go. <laughs> and, and I think it was also around the time when Lost came out, a TV series mm. Lost. I think it started around 2004. That's when I started watching it. I was 11 years old at the time. And uh, I was thinking like this format where you have like episodes dedicated to specific characters with their flashbacks. I was like, yo, this would work so perfectly for Tekken. I'm mm-hmm. like series with like different episodes of flashbacks for all those characters. I was, I was fantasizing about it in a way. So, uh, so my expectations towards like any... Tekken show or series, uh, the bar was very high. So I mean, mm. obviously, I would be uh, disappointed, right? Yeah, but yeah, we can no, have a chat about uh, video game adaptation TV shows uh, after the pod because I've got a few to sure, give you. So sure, there you go. Sure. Uh, I want to finish on a big positive in your life now, Alex, which is your current job and the work you do to help people in Norway who live with disabilities, particularly cerebral palsy. Just tell me more about this and how it has benefited them and also benefited you. Well, how it benefited them, they got to spend time with me. That's <laughs> benefited in and of itself. <laughs> uh, I think it's very giving, being able mm. to uh, help people. And also, you know, just see people as normal individuals, despite their disability or any sort of syndrome people are born with. Just seeing them as people, first, first and foremost, not treating them any different outside of, you know, obvious differences that are, you know, needed to notice in order to uh, help them accommodate their lives as, as best as possible. But, you know, I see it a lot of time because I also have friends with uh, cerebral palsy. So it's not like it's just uh, just my work. I actually hang out with some people who have it. You know, a lot of time you 
or she thinks like, oh, you're hanging out with retards. I'm like, shut the hell up. Like, shut the hell up. It's the sort of things like they wouldn't tell you, tell someone to your face that you are that thing, you know, but because I'm, I know a lot of people like that, they will say those things to me and uh, somehow feel like it's okay to say it. That, that's why I also think that in this country, like in Norway, as a white man or as a white person, you get to experience more racism than a uh, black person or someone from Middle East, mostly because like a lot of Norwegians, they wouldn't tell them to their face. But around you, like if you're white, they're more comfortable with that. And there's like so many, so many Norwegians who just use like the N-word Holy constantly, shit. right? And it's it's not something you see if you're not white. So right. I think you you notice more of that if you're right. white. You said this work has given you hope for humanity. Yes. Tell me more about that. You know, I always had a very dark outlook on humanity. Clearly, uh, <laughs> yes, as we discovered um, on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Just seeing a lot of flaws with humanity and with our nature. I think there's a lot of darkness to us. I think we are very animalistic in a way. I think we're very tribalistic uh, in that sense. So I mean, it's weird not to see those flaws, you know. But at the same time, there are instances where you're like, and it, when you're also like, especially for me, it was this experience when I was working at a summer camp for uh, young adults with cerebral palsy. And then you have, a, it's not just me, there's a lot of people working there who are like helping them have as much of a good time at that summer camp as possible. And you're like, you see this light in humanity. And uh, I think it even set me on the path of doing what I'm doing right now regarding mm. uh, YouTube and helping people who are considering transitioning or detransitioning. Or even like seeing so hope for humanity, which is also the reason why I'm writing the book I'm writing. And it's even the reason why I, it was two years ago. But I did dumb hair blonde on this part here. You look, the... you look at even more Norwegian then. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it, everyone in Norway, little... Norway's blonde. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I think so people who have like seen me on YouTube know that I have like this uh, light hair on the side, mm -hmm. on the right side. Yeah, it was much more of that, but a lot of it was cut off now. But there was a reason for it. It was like the light in the darkness, like this little light, light of hope there. So like, yeah. So it's even... like an affirmation. Your hair is now an affirmation. Well, I, you know, I think I wanted to represent something real with my hair. I think, mm. uh, you know, just there are ideas for like many like different cool hairstyles and things like that. And I think I wanted to do something meaningful. Like I wanted there to be meaning uh, behind my hair. You know, like it's not there just to be there. Or... You spoke about a big issue you had with trust. Has this work gone any sort of way, small or big, to restoring the trust you have in people? Uh, yes, yes, to some degree. And people as humanity and so on and so on. I still have a hard time trusting people in uh, like romantic or sexual context. Mm -hmm. At the moment, but hopefully not in the, the future. At the moment, yeah. oh, it almost seems like you're cheerleading for me here. <laughs> of course, mate. <laughs> I'm such a flirt in many ways, you know, but uh, I, I'll just stop there. Yeah, okay. it is what it is. Let's reflect on your mental health journey, mate. So first of all, what has it taught you about yourself? 
what has taught me about myself all of these experiences um that i don't know who i am and that it's okay yet i don't think it's yet i don't think it's possible to truly i don't think it's possible to truly know who you are in that sense and i Mm, think that's an interesting perspective elaborate I think we should stop just trying to uh, think that we know ourselves and that we know who we are. I'm thinking that at the core of the issue, at its heart, we are chaos, right? There's nothing wrong with that. I mean, there's chaos and there's order in the universe. And I think we are representing that as well, in a sense. I think our nature is chaos, but I think our intellect is trying to make sense of it. So we create a sort of order, and I think we're doing it through identity. I also think it's... Um... Oh, we're going very Jordan Peterson now. <laughs> sorry, about, sorry about that. I wasn't thinking of Jordan Peterson while I was talking about that. I was thinking he's more very, like... He's very order and chaos and, you know, the chaos yeah. and order. Well, well yes, I, I know what you're trying to say there, mate. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, I was thinking like more in terms of uh, even Eastern philosophy. There's mm. a lot. Of, there's a lot of that in Eastern philosophy, and I think Jordan Peterson even takes some inspiration from Eastern. Oh philosophy. yeah, hundred percent, definitely, yeah, yeah. definitely. But yeah, I think identity is sort of a side effect of our tribal nature and our desire to uh, understand ourselves. But mm. you know, I think a lot of what we f- the things we think we know about ourselves are really cultural. So it's like this this code of culture you have on you and then you take it off and you think like you're naked this is the real me but you're really not because even after you strip yourself of those uh, cultural elements and you dive deep into who you are you notice that well i don't even know if my opinions are my own if i don't remember when exactly i've learned that paris is the capital of france if i don't remember all the things I know, where they come from, where I've learned them, how can I fully remember where all of my ideas come from? Are they actually my ideas or are they borrowed? And I think a lot of people, when they start thinking about it, they freak out because it uh, makes you feel like you're losing control of who you are. I embrace that in a sense. So I don't believe in identity in general. Even like people say like, oh, so you identify as a man now that you do transition. No, I don't. I don't identify as anything. I just exist. I exist, I perceive, and I'm trying to process what I'm perceiving and make some idea of it. And I can identify mm. with, with ideas. I can think like some ideas are good, some ideas are bad to that degree. But I don't identify with anything to the sense where that would become like me part of who i am in that sense i really think we should get rid of our ego in the sense that drives us in in that way those are my thoughts around it and second of all as a final question if you could go back and talk to the 14 year old alex who was being heavily bullied the 18 year old alex who was struggling with dysphoria about to go on hormones or the alex who had just come out of surgery and was thinking about detransition what would you say to him, knowing what you do now? Uh, if I was 13, I don't even think I would say anything. I would just give myself a hug. And I think that was more needed than anything. I don't remember anyone hugging me around that time. I was hugged a lot when I was a kid. But my parents got this perception that like, after a certain age, you don't, no longer need that. So, yeah. And I think I needed that. I didn't even know I needed that. I didn't even think I needed that. 
but now I, I know I did. And that's exactly what I would do. Whereas, well, if it was 18 years old me, I think I would give myself the same advice I am giving to people who are considering transitioning. And that is uh, take your time and think it through thoroughly. I wouldn't even say like, don't do it, you're going to regret it. Because I know that that never helps, really. And there's an interesting book written by a philosopher named Peter Boghossian. He wrote a book called Manual, The Creating Atheists. That book, he goes into, well, how can you change someone's mind from going from either like Christian or Muslim to atheist, how you can make someone an atheist. And it's never through like logical arguments. <laughs> That's not what appeals to most people, really. And uh, you have to uh, create doubt in a way. And uh, it's manipulative, for sure. For mm. sure. Like, you know, planting that seed of doubt there, it's manipulative. But I think, you know, if implemented correctly, I think it can be helpful. I don't think the goal should be to manipulate people. But, you know, just to make you think that, well, w- what if I'm actually wrong? Because a lot of people don't even don't even consider that that they might be. But I think if you're already asking that question, if when those are people who are actually, like, wanting to talk to me, about whether transition is the right choice for them, I think that they're already questioning it to begin with. And that's a good thing. I think that's a good thing. I think uh, you should take a responsible approach if you're considering transitioning. I don't think you should be like in a hurry like I was. But, you know, I'm also, I'm a very obsessive person. So when I decide that I want to do something, it's like- You're all in. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, I need to achieve this goal. And I am like super goal oriented. So like everything that is on the way towards my goal is an obstacle. I need to get rid of those obstacles, right? So any sort of like argument against it would be perceived as an obstacle by me. So I think I would go for a more empathetic and emotional approach in my case, rather than like argument from logic. We've talked all about your mental health journey, mate. I now want to talk about all the work you do on YouTube, Twitter, social media as someone who talks about your detransition, but someone who talks about other political issues too. Firstly, why did you decide to take the very brave step and speak out about your experience on YouTube? Oh, wow. Uh, Good question. I mean, I was doing YouTube uh, since 2008. Wow, you so are an OG. So yeah, so it's, it's not it's not like um, new on YouTube, but it was never something like, oh, I'm doing it to get fame or anything like that. It was more like just for fun. So I was posting a lot of videos like me playing guitar. There's a lot of it from like 2008 to much, much, much later on. It's, it's around that time in 2000 so I started playing guitar. So I think it was a good way to get some feedback in a sense for like my progress I was doing and like videos of my pets, things like that. <laughs> and I'll, I was also doing like some comedy skits on YouTube for, uh, for a long time. Uh, it's all out there. So if someone finds it, that's cool. A lot of the time, I'm not able to find anything, all of that, because I don't have access to those channels. And they're like buried deep down, all of this <laughs> stuff. I can't find it myself. So if you can find me on the internet, send it to me. 
please. <laughs> <laughs> Norwegian humor is very niche, so I wonder what that was actually like. <laughs> so this time when I started doing YouTube, I had something very, very different in mind, obviously. And I wasn't even expecting that the video would get uh, so much attention as it did. But it was mostly something I was doing for myself to fully, fully moved on. Because for a long time, I was trying to escape from what happened or even acting like it never happened and just live on, right? But if you need drugs to function, that means you haven't moved on, right? So I was studying occupational therapy for a while last year. One of the practical exams in anatomy that we had required us to meet up there with only our underwear and like touch the other student. Uh, is this going and... to a dark place? <laughs> uh, no, 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 nothing like that. Right, but, okay. But uh, yeah, you had to like touch the other student. There were like the model for you when you were doing the exam. And after that, you were supposed to be the model for the next student who is having the exam. I was like, if I do that, a lot of people will find out that there's something different about my body. I didn't right. want, like, I didn't want other students to know. I've quit. I was like, you know what? No, I'm not doing this. Like, screw that. I'm not going to be an occupational therapist. Uh, and at that point, you know, it was this realization that it always follows you. Like, your past will always follow you, no matter where you go. So that's what got me to uh, make that, that video I've made on my detransition. It has like 120,000 views right mm. now or something like that. It's a long oh, video as well. So yeah, there's a yeah. lot it's of like, it's, like dedicated it's, uh, listeners. A lot of my videos are long, actually. You love a chat, <laughs> mate. Just like yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, I do. <laughs> I do. I'm, I'm a very talkative, actually. I never shut up, to be honest. <laughs> Even when I'm on my own, I'm talking to myself. Like, I'm thinking out loud. <laughs> I love talking. <laughs> like, I live in the wrong country, mate. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely that. Norwegian people are not massively talkative, I'll tell no, you that. No, no, no. Oh, dear. Um, when it comes to the wider conversation, mate, I think it's, there's a really important distinction to make here because I do not refer to men or women like you as detransitioners. Instead, I say men and women who have detransitioned. Why is it important that we make that distinction for the listeners? Oh, uh, so personally, a lot of the time I'm using the word like detransitioned male too. So I'm, um, yeah, I, I agree on that. But I think, uh, you know, I also have to think in terms of uh, algorithms, detransition yeah, yeah, yeah. is the word that gets like most attention. And I think if you want to talk about this, those issues, which I think are serious and we should be talking about, unfortunately, you have to take that into consideration, you know. So it feels weird because I'm like, I'm already thinking like a businessman in that sense. And that's <laughs> just not what I want Your to brand. be. Your brand, yeah. I don't even think of myself as a YouTuber or anything like that. I'm just a guy who makes videos and puts them out on YouTube. But honestly, I think that the world of YouTube is quite fake. Mm-hmm. <laughs> get a lot of people who like even if you collab with someone and they're like hey bestie but then they will never like write to you like it's all about it's all about views it's all about mm -hmm. subs it's super super fake mm. not a lot a of the mental health communities like that as well mate to be honest so yeah i mean most most of communities on youtube are like that mm. you know i'm like i'm not like that and i don't even think of myself as in any way better than um 
my audience or my subscribers like why do should my opinions matter more than theirs the only mm-hmm. difference is that you know i communicate them in a different way i make those videos but uh, you know a lot of time a lot of time uh, the people in the comment section of my videos have just as interesting things to say. And I love mm-hmm. reading those comments. I love responding to those comments. If anyone who's watching me on YouTube is watching this right now, hello, how are you? <laughs> so I, yeah, I love interacting with those people. And as some, you know, it feels like they learn from me and I learn from them because a lot of the time people had some very interesting thing to say in the comment section that I didn't even know about or never even thought about. I was like, hey, you know what? It's interesting. Yeah. It allows for this interaction and communication, and people don't really use YouTube for communication purposes. The Norway healthcare system, mate, is very different from the UK, and the UK has had some major pushback recently against the medicalization of teenagers and young people with dysphoria. The major example being the decision to close the gender identity clinic at the Tavistock NHS Trust. Can you tell my listeners what the situation is like in Norway? It's very back and forth, actually. I mean, I mean, obviously, you know, you have sides who uh, who want kids to be on puberty blockers, and you have a side who is strongly against it. The whole like political climate here is uh, very divided on that issue, not to the same degree as in the. UK or definitely not US. There's less of that, but it's definitely definitely mm. happening. You know, I'm a big advocate for like a balanced perspectives and uh, building bridges. Just honest, like podcast, honest, mate. honest, open mm. conversations, right? But but there are there are like certain issues where it's hard to be in the middle. Mm. And uh, for me, when it comes to puberty blockers, I think they do more harm, and I think you can destroy. I mean. Do I think it can save lives in some cases? Yeah, sure, maybe. I think in a lot of cases, it's not like they're going to unalive themselves. For that reason, I think it's manipulative of doctors to even say that. But uh, I think it can destroy lives in some ways, you know, like take into consideration all like... Uh, Fertility, gay... sexual function. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But also, you know, take into consideration like gay and lesbian people who from the childhood might has some sort of behavior that is very overlapping from someone who's trans. There's a big overlap there, right? A bush lesbian would act in a very similar way to um, someone who is going to be a trans would act like. And I don't think we can tell that difference as easily as we think. Mm. I think it's good to you know have some time to let people think. I'm, I'm opposed to uh, transitioning kids. Mm-hmm. I mean, in a sense, like, if your child wants to dress a certain way, sure, 100%. let them. Let them. Like, I'm not, I'm not uh, the sort of person who think like, oh, we should have those strict gender roles. It's the strict that's gender what, roles. That's what got us in the first place, mate. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's the strict gender roles that were part of the reason why I transitioned instead of just accepting that, you know, I'm a different type of male. Well, if you take that to the extreme, you get Iran. Exactly, which, exactly. Which literally transitions gay people forcibly because yes. it's homophobic. Yes, and I think of it as a uh, conversion therapy of sorts. Yeah. 
And I don't even think that's the intention. I don't think that's the intentionality of this whole phenomenon, really. I think there's a good intention back there, but, uh, you know, the consequences can be quite tragic mm. for a lot of people. Or, you know, also I talk to a lot of women who, like, when they were young girls, they've experienced sexual assault mm-hmm. of some sorts, and they wanted to just escape their womanhood, yes. their femininity. Yeah. They didn't want to be seen that way. And it's like, they wanted you know, to escape body... being the object of sexual desire. Yes, that is the, and uh, that is the, vul- yeah. the vulnerability you feel mm. uh, when you're when you're a woman, right? Right, or even the, the very fact that like your body develops faster than your mind. Like you don't mature mm-hmm. emotionally as fast as your body is maturing. So if you're being seen as a sexual object, but in your head it's still you're still a kid. Mm. Oh, I can definitely sense that dichotomy there you know that dichotomy mm. and yeah i think we need a responsible approach in general mm. but yeah there's definitely a heated debate here in mm. that sense but i also think there's a lot of people who are reasonable on both sides yes yeah and norwegian people yes. are generally quite reasonable to be fair mate so yes yes yeah. and uh i also i'm hanging out with some trans activists and mm. a lot of people will think it's absolutely crazy it's um, I've heard so many people telling me that it will be impossible to build the bridge between detransitioners and trans activists. And I'm always, you know, of this mindset, if someone tells me it's impossible, watch me. All right. It's just like when people told me there's, when a, I was there's a trauma-based that I could, response. I, could, I couldn't get a girlfriend, like watch me, watch me. Yeah. So no, I'm hanging out with trans activists and we're establishing a pretty good relationship there. And I think mm. it's really, I think it's really, really important. I don't think they're as bad as they are because media has this uh, way of misrepresenting people on all sides, you know, like both left and right wing media is so uh, politically biased to sell their own narrative. They would twist the facts. They're giving you so much misinformation. I want to show the truth about trans activists that they're not crazy people who are immune to logic who will scream at you they can be very intelligent very logical people with really good arguments that you might want to listen to actually there's a lot of talk at the moment mate about generating greater awareness for men's mental health i've been doing it for six years now so sometimes the conversation can feel quite tiring to me because what i feel is similar to how there's not a lot of talk about the issues we've discussed on this podcast. There is a lot of talk about getting men or asking men to talk about their mental health, but only about certain issues that those people are comfortable discussing. So what is the state of play like here in Norway? Um, regarding men's health issues? Yeah, just regarding general. men's mental health and the conversation, <clears throat> less so the healthcare system. Right. So in, in general, I think that... Uh, and I think that's the case for all Western society in general. It's not like it's just specific to a certain country, but I think a lot has been done for women to uh, express themselves as they want. But if you're a guy, if you're naturally masculine, you're going to get shit for it from society. So feminists going to call you like being a 
toxic masculinity and all oh, of I hate that. that term. I yeah, used to me, use that term. Me I, I mean, I do think now. I do think it exists. I do think that masculinity mm. can be toxic. I also think that femininity can be toxic as well. But it's not like all masculinity is toxic. I think there's a lot of yeah. That's the implication it gives, though, doesn't it? Yes, it yeah. does certainly. And I think masculinity is needed for the society. So is femininity, and we need mm-hmm. to find we need to find that balance there. I hate just how turbulent like the relationships between men and women on a social so on societal level have become mm. um, it's worse i think yeah. yes much worse and i think both sides are uh, responsible for that correct there, yeah. there's a lot of toxicity both in, amongst like feminists but also in so-called manosphere yeah and they're both saying why don't you cover this issue why don't you cover this issue like and i, yeah. I get quite frustrated about this because you know, there are issues in men's mental health, which no one wants to cover, you know, issues like we've discussed. And when it does get covered, it's covered by extreme people, which therefore creates a cycle of division, similar to how there's probably a lot of issues in women's health and women's issues where no one's talking about it, except for maybe rad feminists. And then because they talk about it, then it creates more division on the other side. So I just, it just really pisses me off, to be honest. Yes. And like the more we move towards those extremes, the more difficult it is to establish uh, any sort of conversation and connection. Yeah, there. common ground. Yeah, yeah. common yeah. ground. Yeah, I think we should be moving, mm. you know, towards the, the middle in, mm. in that sense. But yeah, yeah, I'm not a big fan of manosphere. I think it's uh, bound in hyper materialism, and I think it's definitely promoted by people like Andrew Tate. He's a symptom rather than a cause. I would say. I think he, so he's, too. He's, think he's so taken too. he's taken charge of the vacuum in my opinion. Yes, yes. Uh, I mean, people have created a vacuum. If you demonize Jordan Peterson, regardless of what your opinions about him on other issues are, then you'll create a vacuum for Andrew Tate to come in. That's my opinion. That's my opinion too, honestly. I also think like nothing on either side, whether it's about, you know, femininity and manosphere or whether it's about trans issue or whether it's about economics, uh, Mm -hmm. politics, all of that. I think nothing on either side is happening in the vacuum. Everything is a reaction to what the other side is doing. And it's like, Mm. oh, something happens here. It creates a bigger reaction on the other side. That creates reaction back on on, the right. Um, Yeah, exactly. And also, if Andrew Tate does go away for many reasons, or if he stays, if you don't tackle the issue, there will just be another version of him in a different guise that will come in. Do you know what I mean? Yes. And then, the and then everyone will be attacking that yeah. person and they'll be going, how did we get here? And I was like, well, do you not see what's happening? This is just a repeated symptom. Yes. It's like treating the symptom instead of the core of the illness. Yes. Right. That, yeah. That's ex- exactly, exactly what it is. And I, you know, I think it goes deeper than just that uh, with like feminism and manosphere. I think in general, many of the issues we're seeing today, we have to understand that, we too are like responsible for it and like with let's say political radicalization of trans people why some of them would subscribe to more extremist leftist views because Mm -hmm. i don't think left wing is bad by any means i think there's a lot of good ideas on the left i think there's a lot of good ideas on the right but there are some dangerous elements on both Mm. sides and if someone gets like radicalized to this point you have to understand that you as a right winger played a role in the two because you never accepted trans people. So where do you think they're going to move? Of course, they're going to move as far as possible from the right wing if they think that's the people who hate them. 
obviously, right? And why do we see this uh, extremist movement on? I don't even like the term far right because I think you know far right. What, what is what, far like, right term, now? Yeah, in, in terms of economics, yeah. in terms of economics, mm-hmm. like Ayn Rand is not absolutely far right in uh, that sense, right? I don't think she's an extremist. So I would say extreme right instead of far right. I think it makes much more sense. Why is this happening? This too is reaction on Mm. uh, the Marxist movement that started happening, I would say, around 2011. And I I think Marxism is gaining more popularity and attention in society. And why is that? Well, we'll go just a few years back, 2008, the economic crisis that happened there. And ever since then, you know, it's so much harder for people to uh, buy houses when they're young. Mm -hmm. Like capitalism is no longer... interesting to young people for that reason they uh, see it as being ripped off in that sense and i understand that i understand that absolutely yes you are in the process at the moment of starting the first ever organization to support men and women who have detransitioned in norway so what do you want to achieve with it and has it given you an additional purpose or direction in a way that your career might not be able to Oh, absolutely. Uh, so we're quite far into the process already. Okay. Mm, I'm waiting for the circuit organization number so I can open, we can, we can open a bank account because there's limits to what you can do as an organization without a bank account or without any funds. And uh, yeah, we need to get funding for it too. But yeah, uh, the goal of the organization is first and foremost to make the process of the transition easier for people who uh, detransition. I know very well how much of a lonely process it can be, you know, when you're like completely on your own. And I was on my own for years. I didn't have anyone to talk to. And uh, that sense of community can be helpful to a lot of people. So I'm also establishing some um, cooperation with patient organization uh, for uh, people with gender dysphoria here in Norway. It's It's a trans organization. But I think it's that sort of cooperation is good in the sense that when like one of them, the transitions, they can be sent my way. I'm using them to recruit, basically, <laughs> <laughs> in that sense. But I think there's, uh, you know, other ways that we can work together. And that is how we can improve the whole healthcare system for either trans people or people who think they're trans. Because I think the best thing can be done when we're working together, when both of our perspectives are being taken into consideration to uh, come to the conclusion like, well, what's the best possible system here? And I think that the whole healthcare system of Norway needs to be reformed. I haven't considered getting into politics, like becoming a politician just for the uh, healthcare, which is absolutely horrible here in Norway regarding whether it's physical health or mental health or anything. And, you know, a lot of people say that Norway is such a fantastic country that we have free healthcare. Yeah, sure, buddy. Sure. Uh, I mean, the, the no tuition fees is, is more my jealousy, but there you go. <laughs> I mean, yeah, we pay for healthcare with our taxes, but you also have to pay for like your appointments with the doctor or if you're seeing a therapist, you're still paying for it. Maybe not like big amount of money, but you're paying all that on top of the taxes and the help you get is just so, so, so bad that it might as well not exist at all. And it wouldn't make a difference. Okay, yeah. I mean, that's that's quite a... 
exaggerated hyperbolic way of putting it, but there's there's some truth to it, definitely. Mm. I also, you know, I, I definitely want uh, to work towards more responsible treatment of gender dysphoria and to take into consideration why D-trans stories can be helpful in predicting that this might not be the best choice for someone. And there's a lesson to learn there from... Uh, the stories of detransitioners, including myself, but also, you know, including a lot of other people. I think if we take those things seriously, we can learn certain patterns, why people are more likely to detransition. And some people would say that it's impossible to predict it at all. I disagree with that. And as a final question, what has this YouTube advocacy influencer, whatever you want to call it, journey, taught you about yourself so far too? Um... Well, first of all, I think that my life is meaningful and a lot of the time I felt inferior living in the society because I think it also boils down to uh, autism as well. But it felt like I wasn't good at anything or that the things I was good at weren't appreciated, like it's useless. And most of the things that I would say I was good at was, yeah, philosophy. Like, that's the love of my life, always will be. Music, like, I make music, I record music, I compose. And I have a very cinematic way of thinking, of seeing, like, pictures. I want to, I would like to make films at some point. Is that autism Uh, influenced? How how it makes your brain work? Oh, I think so, too. I think so, yes. I don't think autism is all bad. I think there's a lot of good things that come with it. But the way society views us, it always felt like I... Uh, was expected to fit into a specific role in society ever since I was a kid. First, it was with gender roles. But then another thing is I come here to Norway. I'm from a working class family. And, you know, what is expected of you if you're an immigrant and you're from working class family, that you too should uh, participate in manual labor. And I'm such a dyspractic person. I suck at anything to do with uh, doing something with my hands or doing something with my body. And I don't function well in situations where I have to uh, work with customers either because of my autism. People piss me off really easily. I get angry. (laughs) And because of that, you know, through work life, I always feel like I'm useless. I'm not good at anything. I would rather just, you know, focus on like philosophy and music and all of that. And yeah, I was doing that. But for a long time, things I was doing didn't really feel like appreciated. It didn't feel like society cared about what I'm doing at all. And I want to be useful. You know, I want to do something meaningful for society. And I also think that's sign of sign of maturity in a sense that you're thinking beyond yourself. Like I'm temporary. I have to do something for society that lasts longer than me. Uh, I think a lot of people do that by having kids. That's great. But I think there's also other ways to contribute. And I, I always wanted to contribute. And I sort of have the opportunity to uh, do that. And, you know, even when someone sends me a message or comments on my videos where they were thinking of transitioning but found out that they had internalized homophobia and that, like watching my videos helped them. That makes me feel that if I was to die today, I would be happy because my life had some sort of meaning. Like it wasn't for nothing, you know. I didn't live just for me. I helped someone, and uh, I think I think that's that's the beauty of it, really. 
We've come to our final topic of conversation, Alex, and it's one I try and have with all of my special guests. It is a general natter and quick fire chat about our mental health. So firstly, how is your mental health, mate? It's all right. I'm functioning mm-hmm. to some degree. Could be better. I'm still working mm-hmm. on myself, of course, but at least I'm not in the bed for three months without showering like I used to. So that's a good thing. Yes. Set the bars low, you'll always achieve them. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. We've spoken about the mental health conditions you live with, and you've also told me what age you became self-aware of your mental health, which was very, very young. So those are my first two questions done. My next question is, can you remember the first conversation you ever had with someone about your mental health? So who was it with? What did you say? And what impact did it have? Did it feel like on the one hand, a big moment or a weight had been lifted? Or on the other, something very easy and normal to do. I haven't had any conversations about mental health with anyone for a very, <laughs> Until very now. long time. <laughs> Until now. Until I've met you, Freddie. Just came here, white nights, absolutely changed my life, swept me off my feet. <laughs> please, please, stop. You give me too little credit. <laughs> That's a few trauma oh, quote. That's a few trauma quote. That's a few you trauma want quote. more? We can get so. We can get so. I think growing up in Poland, just a lot of stigma around mental health. Like it's not something you talk about. If you're going to see a therapist, you're probably crazy. That's the mentality there. And uh, once I came to Norway, I wasn't able to see any therapist until 2021. And at that point, it was already already quite late. And I, I tried. I tried uh, since 2011. So I tried for 10 years. And it's really, really hard to get any appointment here. They will uh, just conclude that... Ah, uh, you don't qualify for therapy. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I I literally have to uh, try it and kill myself before uh, I could even get anywhere. Mm. <laughs> that tells you something about how bad the whole healthcare system is here. What things do you find in life, mate, that trigger your mental health? So it could be things people say to you, a sound, a particular social environment, or have you not figured all of them out yet? Um, yes, I've, um, I figured it out very, very much. There are certain things. First of all, I've already mentioned it, but any sort of medical environment triggers that. Also a lot of smells that will remind me mm. of uh, certain things. And those could be the usual smell you associate with hospitals and clinics, but also certain smells from my childhood, which feel nostalgic for a lot of people can be uh, triggering for me in that sense. Also, the smells associate with person who assaulted me, uh, like mint electric c- cigars. Oh, okay. Yeah, I don't... Uh, vaping, I think it's called. Yeah, like this, yeah, yeah like vaping, this yeah. Mint, like this, this mint... E-cigarettes or vaping. E-cigarettes, yeah. E-cigarettes yeah. vaping, yes, that's what it's called. That smell can be very, very triggering for me as well. Mm. A lot of it has to do with smells. I'm a smelly person. <laughs> <laughs> what a very Norwegian way of putting it. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, like, everything is about smell for me. I don't even find people, like, physically attractive in terms of their look. I'm all about their voice and their smell, the way they move. Yeah, that's my thing. Mm. That's what I'm attracted to in general. So I'm, smell is a big part of my life in many ways. I use my nose more than my eyes. Conversely then, what positive tools and methods do you use to improve your mental health or help you feel better? Which ones have worked and maybe which ones that you've tried but haven't? Um, so here's the thing. like In terms of panic attacks, what helps me? It's just accepting that it takes place and letting it run its course. 
uh, not fighting it. I think that makes it worse. I'm just sitting down, trying to calm myself down. I understand what is happening. So I'm like, just let it run its course. If it gets really bad, I will take a cold shower or even dunk my head in cold water. Yeah, it can be helpful in that sense. Otherwise, meditating and also sort of became my own therapist just trying to understand myself better trying to understand well, you talk why to yourself I... a lot that makes sense yeah, yeah. So, like trying to understand why i think the way i think why i feel the way i feel and uh what of it is, is useful and what of it can be a sign of trauma you know mm. and uh, it has been helpful i uh came a long way just on my own even though i still have a long way to go what is the best book, or as I call it, mental health Bible you've read for your mental health, mate? Now, it can be self-help or mental health related. It doesn't exclusively have to be. And if you can't think of a book, a film, album, any piece of popular culture. Sure. I don't read self-help books at all. I don't really read a lot of fiction either. I used to, but now just reading like philosophical, and political and scientific literature. And uh, that's about it. Uh, Give me an that, album then. An, an album. Uh, basically, almost everything by Stephen Wilson helped me a lot. A Porcupine Tree. A Porcupine Tree is my favorite band. But there's a solo album by Stephen Wilson that I think is really, really good. It's called Hand Cannot Erase. It's about social isolation. And uh, yes, it is a dark, it is a depressive, sad album in many ways. I also found it relatable in many ways. It helped me. And I think it's those sad, melancholic things that actually help you because it makes you relate. Yeah, sure, you might, you know, listen to some club music or something like that in hope that it will make you feel better. Actually, no, because that would just feel like uh, like this empty pleasure, this sort of hype. I think it's when you go into this uh, depth of sadness that you find some light there, actually, through that. Also, The Wall by Pink Floyd, the album, helped me a lot. And some songs by an independent artist. His name is Tom McDonald. And mm-hmm. uh, that, there are two specific songs. He's a legend, Tom McDonald. He's a big he, legend. He yeah. He's very provocative. I think, I think a lot of the times he, he just wants to provoke like he knows what he's doing. He's a, he's a businessman. He's promoting his brand in such a good way. Uh, like he just says things just to get certain reaction of people. So people yeah. eat. What's the track he did that was like fake woke or something like that? Uh, fake woke. <laughs> yes, yeah. it's very yeah. controversial. Very but controversial. I love yeah. I love controversial things, whether it's like right wing controversy or left wing controversy. I'm attracted to that because I'm into like anything that just challenges the status quo you know i think that's cool i think that's cool and a lot of the times i do agree with him not 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 all the time but i think some songs like the system or dirty money he's like Mm. spot on on uh, the uh, actual issue there but beyond that i think when he really shines is that the songs he makes about mental health and uh, like those small and life songs about life and mental health i think that's where he's at his best. That's what I think, like, his his true self. Like, he's yeah. not doing it for views, like, with his political songs. But there are two songs, specific songs I have in mind. Castles. That song saved my life, actually. I'm willing to say that, like, wow. uh, Tom McDonald saved my life with that song, Castles. You know, the, the, the chorus, like, we can fill our coffins with the rocks they have thrown, or we can build our castles with the sticks and the stones. Mm. I think, yeah. 
I think it's absolutely yeah, I... beautiful and meaningful. Also, withdrawal, his songs, I found it so relatable also because my uh, past experience with addiction. It's one of the realest songs I have ever heard about this specific topic. It's raw and real. Yeah, I had no idea who he was. And then Blair White interviewed him. And I was like, who is this guy? And then I looked at some of his music. And I listened to a few tracks and I was like, wow, this guy is massive. Like, he is huge in America. I had no idea yes. who he was. Yes. Yeah. I have all of his albums, mostly mm. because like a guy saved my life. So I was thinking like, <laughs> you know what? I have nothing against spending money to buy his albums. I don't even like all of his music. There's a lot of songs that I like don't vibe with. That, that's okay. But there's a lot of stuff I liked her too. Mm -hmm. I like his newer stuff because it's more uh, rock oriented, mm -hmm. his new stuff. Like the, the last uh, two albums were like very, very rock-ish. Mm. There's a lot of rock and country inspiration in his music as well. Mm. If there was a mantra in life that summed up your mental health, what would it be and why? Um, embrace the chaos, <laughs> I suppose. I mean, I, I don't really like use any mantras or anything like that but yeah i would say that that's a good one what do you love about yourself oh i'm grateful you asked this question because i think it's important to love yourself and not in the narcissistic way of course but i, but I think like you know at the end of the day this is the life you live this is the person you are. And I think it's very important to love yourself. And for a very long time, I didn't love myself. I think I love my specific way of thinking. It's mm. what makes me who I am. I love that about uh, myself. And also, my look shallow. But I like the way I look. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, yeah, why not? Here's complete, complete honesty. And I didn't always feel like that. So... It feels good to uh, finally be able to like myself in that way, just looking in the mirror. And I'm like, hey, you know what? I'm liking what I'm seeing. And like I said, not in a narcissistic way, but like in a healthy, of course. healthy yeah. way. And for me, a big thing uh, was like my hands. Because I have very small, very... So feminine. do I. I've I have, tiny I have hands, small, mate. I have small, tiny <laughs> hands. Before I transitioned, people were commenting on that all the time. Like you have so feminine hands. And uh, I hated that, not necessarily because I hated my hands, but because I hated people commenting on that all the time. Yes. And it felt good when I transitioned because at that point, no one was commenting on my hands anymore. Like, I think it would be the opposite if I had giant hands, you know, and yeah, I transitioned. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> people would be <laughs> commenting a lot for sure. But no, it's more like now there were just hands. Mm. And I like that. And when I detransitioned, uh, people are talking about my hands. Like, yeah, mm. so small hands. But at this point, I love my hands. So. And as a final question, mate, what more do you think we have to do to ensure men from all backgrounds, all nationalities, all walks of life feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or just their general mental health if, most importantly, they want to do it? Oh, I think personally that it will not be easy to uh, get it done. There's a lot of stigma around mental health and men, but I think we should be taking uh, men's health issues and mental health issues very seriously. You know, there's higher suicide rates among males, higher homelessness rate as well. And 
well, there's a lot of focus on women's rights, women's health, all of that. I think we are equal in the sense that we should focus on both at the same time and equally. I think a healthy society has healthy men and healthy women, right? And in a way, I don't really believe in equality that it can be achieved because one side will always want. You mean to true achieve. equality? You mean that true sort of equality. sense? Yes, yeah. I don't think it is possible to achieve because one side will always want to have more. It's either this side or the other side, and human nature just doesn't work in that way to allow for this sort of equality. It's very utopic. It's very utopic. And that's the case with most utopias. They are impossible to achieve. A lot of the times we're aiming to achieve some sort of utopia. We're getting the opposite effect. We're uh, moving towards dystopic reality. I mean, that's basically how a lot of very authoritarian, very totalitarian movements of early 20th century started with that idea of equality, the idea of utopia. I don't think it's within human nature in that sense, which is sad, of course, because you know you, it's unachievable to all of us be on the same level. It's not that we shouldn't uh, value equality at all. I propose like a realistic outlook on things. And on that note, Alex, it has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on the Just Checking In podcast and talking to me, mate. Thank you. Cheers. Well, that's all we've got time for on this episode of the Just Checking In pod. I want to say a big thank you to Alex for being my special guest on this episode and for letting me check in with him. I'll put links to where you can subscribe to his YouTube channel and follow him on social media in the show notes. I'll sign us off by saying, remember, if you've liked what you've heard, please give this podcast a share on social media. Tell your friends or work colleagues about it. If you're feeling generous, please write us a review and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts, hopefully a nice one. If you like what we're doing here at Vent and want to support us further, you can do so at www.patreon.com slash venthelpuk or you can make a one-off donation to our GoFundMe or buy a Vent t-shirt. All of those links are on our link tree. That's linktr.ee slash venthelpuk. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, guys, it is always okay to vent. Thank you.